Uh, for the rest of you, welcome to King's Chapel uh, during this Labor Day weekend. Thanks for being here. Um, I know a lot of folks are out of town uh, for various travels, and, uh, but glad to be here with you guys worshiping uh, this Sunday. We are ending um, this little mini-series. We'll be reviewing our uh, mission statement here at King's Chapel, which is this, that we would make disciples. That is the mission God has given us. And we want to make disciples who know God, who grow together, and who reach our world. And so this morning, we're going to be in, turning in um, Mark chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 20 is where we're going to read there about this scene from the life of Jesus in his mission. So follow along in your own Bibles as I read out loud, as we read God's word. Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chained, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and he was cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and the country, uh, the, the people came to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened, the demon-possessed man to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did, but he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This is the reading of God's reliance, holy and inspired word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, like I said, we've been looking at our, our mission statement, know, grow, reach. We're about making disciples who have these things happen in their life, through the course of their life, all through the life, their life. And we, can, we should, we're getting to reach our world this morning, but as we come to this idea of reaching our world, I think we have to consider and admit as we consider this call that this is the one between know, grow, and reach that finds the most resistance in our hearts. At least on the surface, knowing God conjures up for us pictures of us in a lovely coffee shop with curated coffee and exposed brick and, 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 and distressed wood and clean lines. And so that is attractive to us, the Instagram photo of knowing God. And then there's the, the growing together, 
The growing together pictures up for us, kind of conjures up pictures of laughter and enjoying good friends around a, a table and eating together and enjoying time together hanging out. But what does Reach Our World conjure up? Immediately what we think about is our calendars and our bank accounts and how stressed out we are they are and how guilty we feel by the fact that we actually don't even know our neighbor's names, much less share the gospel with them. And we, we have to admit the fact that the ease and safety of our culture, the lack of threat, the opulence, the wealth that we have, the, the, the busyness that we constantly have has a dulling effect on our spirits and our souls, specifically when it comes to mission, to mission. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's real resistance in all three of the areas. There's many things that keep you from pursuing knowing God and from pursuing growing together as God's people in community but of all these, I think the, the one that has the most immediate resistance of our soul, in our souls is reaching our world. And perhaps even our theological personality skews in this direction. You may not be aware of this, but you're in what is called the Presbyterian Church. Now, if there is one thing that Presbyterians are known for, it is not our mission, it is our theology. And one of the things that we actually I talk about this in our discovery class for our membership course is we talk about this, the philosophy of discipleship here is this. That it is your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that all three of these things have to be involved in your development as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as Presbyterians, we tend to think, and as Westerners, we tend to think that it is an information download, that that is how we are shaped and formed. And yes, there is information that happens. You, are being, you must be transformed in the renewing of your mind. You do need to know theology and come to know the Bible. But just as much in following Jesus and growing as a disciple involves reaching our world. That all three of those, we tend to think that, oh, I must know God and we're going to grow for a long period of time. Then I'll start thinking about serving and reaching my world as if mission is downriver. But that is not how discipleship works. It is always all three going on at the same time. That you come to know your God as you participate in his mission in this world. Because he is a missional God. The very nature of who he is is he came to reach this world. And so I wanna connect, reach our world, and this idea of our mission as a church to reach the unreached, to reach our neighbors, to proclaim the gospel to our children with the most basic definition of discipleship. What is the most basic definition of discipleship one can have? I think it is this, following Jesus. Following Jesus. And if you're going to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, yes, you must sit at his feet. And yes, you must participate in a growing knowledge of him along with the community of God's people. But yes, absolutely, if you're going to follow Jesus as a disciple of Christ Jesus, you're going to follow him into his mission. Because Jesus came and set his face on this mission to save the world. And so are you a disciple of Jesus? And so let's follow Jesus this morning in Mark chapter five as he, as he follows across the sea. To give you some context, in Mark chapter four, Jesus has just been preaching and teaching uh, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the land of Israel. And after preaching and teaching, they get on a boat and they travel across the Sea of Galilee. In the midst of that, they run across essentially a, a hurricane, a tempest, and the disciples are very afraid. And Jesus stills and calms the wind and the waves, and then he reaches the other side, the other side 
of the Sea of Galilee. And so this morning, we're going to see what Jesus does. We're going to follow him as one of his disciples as he crosses the Sea of Galilee and engages in mission on this world. Let's do this. Let's, let's ask for the Spirit of God to push back our resistance this morning, though. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who are on mission, that you would form us and shape us, not simply in easy chairs and around dinner tables, but Lord, that we would begin to see that the dinner table is a place of mission, that we begin to see that the places where we live and work and play are where you have called us to engage the world with the mission of Jesus Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, Spirit of the living God, in my weakness of voice and word and spirit, would you work forth in power and strength this morning by your spirit to change our hearts, to transform us into a people who are true disciples, who follow you in the deepest and darkest places. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're a disciple on the boat, and you land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as a disciple who follows Jesus... And you watch Jesus in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to tell you four things, four things that you would see. And I want to be very frank on the very beginning. You know, some sermons, I do this about once a year, I have to admit this, where I've taken so clearly from some other pastor and preacher that I have to simply just acknowledge it and give a kind of a carte blanche of just saying, so much of what you're going to hear is from this one guy. And this week, it's the headings of my sermon, not most of the things I say, but the headings of the sermon come from a guy named pastor named Ray Cortez. But here's the headings that we see in this text of what we see. If we're following Jesus in the mission, here's what we'd see. First is that there's no place that Jesus won't go. There's no place that Jesus is not willing to go. There's no foul place in this corner of the world that Jesus is unwilling to go and use his hands and feet in ministry. In the crossing of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is, enters and lands on the land of the Gerasenes. This is no longer the land of Jerusalem. This is no longer Israelite territory. He is now smack dab in Gentile territory. And this is significant because he has a bunch of Jewish disciples. And any good Jewish boy would know that there are particular places that good Jewish boys don't go. And number one of those was across the Sea of Galilee to the land of the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles were considered unclean, they were hated, and they were defiled. To speak to them, to spend time with them, to touch them, meant you had to go ceremonially wash and clean yourself. And not only that, but where does Jesus land them? Not only is in the land of the Gerasenes amongst the Gentiles, but where, what is the place next door? It is a pig farm. What are good Jewish boys not supposed to eat, look at, or touch? Bacon, bacon. And so this is the whole scene that the gospel writer is, is giving us here is a scene in which Jesus is entering the land of uncleanliness. That this is not the land of the, of the kingdom, but Jesus crosses over and despite the cultural barriers, despite his own society's rules that say, don't go near them. He, that this, this act is frowned upon. Jesus was willing to cross a sea, in fact, through a hurricane, in order to get to the other side so that he might proclaim the gospel over there. And this is the heart of our God, not simply in the New Testament, but this is the heart of our God throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says this, It is too small a thing when he's calling Isaiah to be my servant to restore, restore the, just the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. 
I will also make you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God is saying in Isaiah 49, it is, it is too small the mission for me just to save Israel. I'm after something greater. I'm after saving people in every tribe and tongue and people and nation in the four corners of the world. And King Chapel, is this our attitude? That we are willing to be a people who are willing to go anywhere inside of our community around the world. Are we willing to invite people into our church and to say, I, I, would, I long for the people of our community who don't look like me and talk like me. You know, there's nothing I want. It's community group time. Where we, some of you are signing up for community groups. Some of you are rejoining your community group after a summer time off. And what is one of the number one thing that we want in a community group? We want to be in a community group with people who look like us. Who are of our social abilities. Lord, don't give me the socially awkward. What about a naked guy showing up to your community group like there's the guy here? But this is the people that Jesus goes after. We love to have a church where no one struggles with gender issues or addiction. But that's not the church that Jesus develops. It's not the people where he goes to. He goes in the deep and darkest parts of our world. One pastor in a denomination took over a church of over 1,000 people. In his first year, they were getting ready for vacation Bible school. And he suggested that, hey, as part of our vacation Bible school, we have 1,000 people in this church. We have a large facility. We desperately need to reach this particular neighborhood with the gospel. So why don't we go there and invite all the children of that neighborhood? And it set off a firestorm amongst the church because people were saying this, I don't want my children in community with those children may it never be for the church of Jesus Christ to the dankest and darkest corner of the world Jesus will go Jesus is saying this what it means to be a disciple of mine is that you will follow me where I go you will follow me where I go if you go into the chapel of Wheaton College it's in near Chicago Illinois and you step inside the front door and you look to the left there's a picture there of five young men. Five young men who had recently been married, here they are. And they had, some of them had, had their first children and they decided they were gonna go live amongst the Wadani people in Ecuador. Now the Wadani people, sociologists at the time, were saying were the most murderous people on the face of the earth. In fact, their, their, their life their lifespan was constantly decreasing, and in fact, they predicted that within a few generations, they would be entirely wiped out because they were a people who were so vindictive, not simply with other tribes, but with, with one another, that they were slaughtering each other. They killed their own. They were bloodthirsty. They killed outsiders. When the leader of the tribe would be, would, was, if he died, his whole family would be taken out with him. And it is to this people that these five young men decided we want to go share the gospel. And they made plans for years. And they set up their life and they took their family to Ecuador and they were going to fly into the area where the Badani tribe lived. And they flew in there. And they lasted a week. Within a week, all five were dead. They had been speared to death on the very beach that they flew into to share the gospel to this people. Now, when those five boys went to Badani, why did they go? Was it because they had missed World War II and the Korean War and they were just looking for some adventure in their life? Was it because they were just more brave and more courageous than most? No. 
If you look at their writings and why they went, it's because they knew they were following in the footsteps of their master, who when they read the Old New Testament and they saw the places that Jesus go, they said, I will go where Jesus calls me to go. And that means I go to the darkest, dankest hole in the world in order to see people know Jesus, to bring the healing balm of the gospel to that place. There's no place Jesus won't go. And so where has Jesus called you to go? He might ask you to have a really awkward conversation with your socially awkward neighbor. Don't you, aren't you afraid of those? You're terrified of them. He might ask you to go to your homeschool group or go into Tanner Medical. He might ask you to go into the school system. He might ask you to go into the foster care system. Where is he calling you to go? There is no place that the Christian gets to tell Jesus, I will not go there. Because Jesus says, I have come for all peoples. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, you go to the places where Jesus goes. Now when you follow Jesus into his mission, you not only find that he's willing to go to any place, but you also find this, that there's no person that Jesus can't heal. And that is good news. If you're going to go to the deepest, darkest holes, there's no, it's good news to know that Jesus can heal any person. The description of this man, he is called the Gerasene demoniac. It is frightening. Out of the tombs comes this wild man who resembles something like the Tasmanian devil out of the Bugs Bunny cartoon. This man is a stark, raving lunatic. He is naked. He is, has sores and scars all over his body. He cuts himself. He has chains. That is the only thing that he wears is chains chains and ropes along on his arms. But in his physical experience, you can see the deep crumbling of his life. This is a tormented man, a demon-possessed man. He is afflicted in every way. And as a result, he is, if you look at this guy, we would say he's dehumanized, is he not? Have you ever come across somebody out in the world in which you go, Lord, have mercy. What has happened to this image bearer? And that is what has happened to this man. He is dehumanized. He appears animalistic. He is a cutter. He is ostracized and isolated from any form of community. And he lives where? Amongst the dead. Which is symbolic for his life because that is, his home resembles his life. He is living a living death. And when he is, what he has going on inside of him with demons afflicting him is a, un, is a merciless power. A power that is destroying him. But then within a few minutes, with one interaction, this man is sober and healthy and whole and clothed and in his right mind. What happened? What happened? Was it the social programs of Gerasene? Here's what happened. The mercy of Jesus happened. Jesus doesn't deliver this man because he deserves it. He delivers this man because of his own mercy. In fact, when he commissions this man later on, as we're going to see, he says this in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Think about this man's life. There's a key word there. It says that he was restrained, but the restraints and the shackles could hold him no longer anymore. That means the city had sought to do everything in their power in order to try to constrain this man and seek some sort of healing and protection for him and for others, but nothing could stop him. 
Listen, counseling can help us think clearly and medicine can subdue us, but only the mercy of Jesus Christ can actually has the power to save us. There is no person that Jesus is unable to heal because the frequency of Jesus' heart is, it, it is attuned. The middle C of his heart is this. It is mercy. It is mercy for sinners. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says this. It describes God this way. God being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. He is a being. He is not becoming merciful because you have acted appropriately. This man throws himself at Jesus' feet, and yet what is the voice that's still coming out of him? And it's still the voice of demons. But he is rich in mercy. His being, his very essence is merciful. Understand this. Jesus did not purchase a specific amount of mercy on the cross. He is mercy. If mercy was something he simply had and possessed outside of himself, then he, he could run out of it. But he does not dole it out in small doses. He doles it out and out of abundance, out of the wellspring of his heart. He is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals we make as sinful, broken people only seek to reveal the depths of his mercy all the more. And who receives mercy? Who receives mercy? The one who knows they need mercy. Verse 6, this man can do nothing. Nothing. In verse 7, the demons are still speaking out of his voice. They still have control of him. He can do one thing. What does he do? He throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Verse 6, he ran and fell at the feet of Jesus. This man brings nothing. He knows nothing about Jesus. He knows nothing about the doctrines of Jesus. He knows nothing about Jesus other than this is a place perhaps I can find mercy. And the gospel show up a time and time again that the person who becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ and the fact that the persons who become the great missionaries for Jesus Christ following him are those who know they need mercy. And this story is the deranged, demon-possessed man who comes begging Jesus and a few verses later, who is it that tells Jesus to go away? The law and order townsfolk tell Jesus to get out of town. But this is what Jesus has described all through his ministry is the way it's supposed to be, the way it is. In, verse, in chapter, Matthew chapter 9, verse, verse uh, 10, it says this, As Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. Sinners is a euphemism for prostitutes. And when the Pharisees saw this, that's the religious leaders, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I am not coming for those who have convinced themselves that they are okay. Jesus says, I am came for the people who have felt the sickness in their souls and they ache inside. Those who feel regret and shame, those who have been longing to get better and have no idea how to make themselves better. And so they simply come on, the, on their knees saying, have mercy on me, have mercy. Do you see the emphasis of God's grace and his mercy? It is simply freely given. It is not if you try hard enough, maybe God will accept you. But Christianity is not a religion of works. It is a relationship of grace that is extended to you. It is not, but legion, didn't you put on your clothes before you went to Jesus? Nope. I went to him stark, raven, naked. 
But legion, didn't you clean up and hide your bloody wounds before you went? And to Jesus, no, I was a sick, sore. I had pus coming out of every crevice of my body. I was disgusting, and yet he received me. But legion, didn't you try to get rid of your demons and tell them to go away before you went to Jesus? Absolutely not. They spoke out of my very mouth, and yet he silenced the evil within me and sent them away. That's grace. Jesus looks upon us begging and pleading souls, and he says, if your heart is hard this morning, I have mercy to soften. If your heart is dead, I have mercy to make you alive. If your heart is sick with sin, my mercy is here to heal and to cleanse. So no one, no one is out of reach of the mercy of God. The Madani people, the very same young men who were killed, one of the, one of the a guy whose name is Nate Saint, his sister went in and shared the gospel with the Wadani people. And Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, did the same thing. And within a matter of a generation, much of that tribe came to know Jesus. There's no one Jesus can't heal. Into the darkness goes the gospel, and there's no one outside the long reach of his merciful sa- this merciful Savior. He can heal the Wadani people, and he can heal law and order, self-righteous people like us. And so when you follow Jesus in the mission, not only do you find that he is willing to go any place and he's able to heal anyone, but when you follow him in the mission, you find that there is no power that Jesus can't overcome. And that is good because we don't have a whole lot. There is a powerful force that has taken over this man. This is hard for us. We did a whole series on spiritual warfare, and my guess is we still don't even quite understand the whole concept of spiritual warfare and the evil that surrounds us. When Jesus asks this man his name, the demon cries out and says, my name is Legion. A legion, this is a reference to the Roman, the Roman soldiers. A legion of Roman soldiers was between five and 6,000 in number. The picture here is a vast army. Many of you have seen the movie Gladiator. And the opening scene of Gladiator is a Roman army going up, a German, up against this kind of Germanic army in the woods of somewhere in northern Europe. And, and Russell Crowe, who's the actor playing this great general, and he's overseeing this army that's arrayed before him, and his army is orderly and structured. It is a killing machine. And what does Russell Crowe say as a way of releasing them? He says, unleash hell. You want to know what it looks like when hell truly is unleashed in the soul of a human being? It is this man. The destruction that has been wrought in his life. Maybe this man was once a father and a brother and a man who carried a job. But over time, evil took over more and more and more. The Bible says nothing could help this man. They had chained and bound him. Nothing could hold or bind him up because there was a power at play. That was not simply his own strength and his own ability, but there was a power at play that was greater than anything in the world. And what is that power called? It's called evil. Evil. You see, there is evil inside of us. If you haven't realized that, just live a little bit longer. 
We are perfectly capable of evil with our own corrupt hearts, but there's also an evil external to us, and it can be visited on us by these evil forces and even by other people. But evil is also above us. It is more powerful than us. You do need to understand that. The evil one is more powerful than you and your own strength. And this is important. Our understanding of the problem, the problems that we see in this world, will shape the answers that we give to those problems. Do we believe that the problems of our world are ultimately because there is an evil kingdom at work? Well, that's going to lead to certain answers. But if you think that the, ultimately the problem of this world is that there's chemical imbalances at the core of the issue, then scientific and medical manipulation will be the answer. If you think that the problem is in balanced social structures, then the answer of critical theory and social engineering will be the answer. Just flip the power structure. If you think a lack of education and understanding is the problem, then you will think that information will be the answer. If you think that just a lack of personal discipline is the problem, then you will believe that self-improvement and self-help, that is the gospel that we can give. And therefore, the gospel of so much, particularly of the country fried south, is this. Buck up. There is really nothing in life you can't handle. But that is an awful gospel to people who actually are fallen sinners. And if you think you lack, the issue is a lack of self-belief, that's the problem, then you believe that just hanging on to your dreams is the good gospel answer to all of your issues. If you think that a poor pattern of communication is why your marriage is being destroyed, then you will behave, but you'll go and say, well, the answer is just to get a few exercises on communication, and that will save this sorry marriage. But these things are not the answer. And we have tried for century after century after century to say, these are the core issues, and we have looked to these various gospels as being the answer, but we do not have the ability to heal tribal warfare to heal the nations and to heal the diseases and the plagues, to heal our community and to heal our children, our families, our marriages, because we can't even heal ourselves. Does anything in the history of the world confirm any of those matters, any of those answers that actually being the answer to the core issue? And they can't answer because while those things that I mentioned may be a symptom or a part of the problem, the core issue is that working in me and working through me and working upon me and working above me is an evil. And you are too small to come face to face with it. If you understand there's an evil that cuts through the human heart and that pervades the world, then you will get rid of this disenchanted notion that you could just, you know, defeat evil on your own. And so what do we need? We'll begin looking for a new power outside of ourselves and outside of our chemical imbalances and outside of our social engineering and we'll seek and cry out as this man did on our knees and say, we need a power. And that is the one who came in Mark chapter five. What do we see? Jesus deals with 6,000 demons with a word. He doesn't break a sweat. When a legion, an army of demons meets Jesus, there is absolutely no contest. There's not even a struggle. There's not even a struggle. And do you see the dynamic between the evil forces of here and Jesus? They have to ask his permission to go into the pigs. Listen, I don't ask my kids for permission because we are not, they're not the authority. If you have to ask somebody for permission to do something, you're acknowledging that they have authority over you. And so the demons go into the pigs and the pigs go running off the cliff into the water. Now at this point, 
every commentator and everybody has to stop and say something about the pigs because for some reason this happened particularly in the middle part of the 20th century, particularly Bertrand Russell. He actually looked at this scene and said, this is why I can't believe in Jesus because he was so mad and about how mean Jesus was to the piggies. Jesus did not send the piggies over the cliff. He just sent them the demons and the demons sent the piggies over the cliff. And so people are like, what about the piggies? And more of us, if you're more like me, you're like, what about the bacon? <laughs> and that's probably what the townspeople were thinking. This is economic devastation for us. That is bad. Now, I don't entirely know why Jesus had to send the demons to the pigs. But I do know this, that Jesus puts more value on one human life and the saving of one image-bearing soul than he does on a couple of thousand pigs. The people see their pigs are gone and they see that the man who was once deranged and out of his mind is now clothed and in control. A man who was once alone and deserted has found a savior and a people. And what do they do? They put more value on the pigs. This sounds stunningly like us. It sounds like Jonah too. But the order of things in God's economy are not this. He says one life. I would lay down my life for one, one man. Jesus uses and extends his power to care for the lowly and the naked and the deserted and the helpless. And this man is better and worth more to Jesus than 2,000 pigs. And the place we find the willingness of Jesus to heal, the full length that he is willing to go in order to save the weak and the naked, is that Jesus is willing to trade places. At the end of Mark, what is Jesus' attire at the cross? What does he look like on the cross? He is a man covered in scars and beaten. He is a man who has been made naked and exposed. He is a man who is dwelling amongst the place of death in the tombs. And he is a man screaming out. And what does the naked man on the cross scream? Ah, oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus is the naked man, wounded and afflicted and deserted as this man was. He traded places with him. And what Jesus did was absorb the evil and the injustice and the sin and death that this man experienced and this man committed into himself. He died on the cross to pay for sins so that someday he could wipe out evil without wiping out us. He screams in the tombs, crying out for the Father so that he might silence the screams of this man amongst the tombs. And this is the gospel, that Jesus dies in the place of screamers and self-mutilators, those who are alienated from themselves and alienated from others. This is what he has come to do. And this one who took this tormented soul out of the tombs at the cross, took the evil that afflicted that man, and he put evil into the ground and he buried it. So the Colossians could say this, and he disarmed evil triumphing over them. You see, this is what Jesus came to do, to go to any place, to heal any person, and by his power to overcome the evil in this world. And therefore, whenever you see a shrieking, chain-busting man kneeling at the feet of Jesus and sitting at church and taking part in the Lord's Supper, then you can know this. This is a preview of what's coming. He said, this is why I came, to make all things new, to set the captives free, in Church of Jesus Christ, we get to be participants in this. Not by our own strength, but by his. If we try to do this by our own strength, we're going to be just part of the problem. 
but you are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ if you've been made ambassadors of the king with the message of the one who has the power to heal. This is why Christians go into the darkest places in our world. This is why Christians go and seek to save women out of human sex trafficking. This is why Christians become counselors and walk beside the addicts and the broken and those whose marriages are crumbling. This is why Christians share the gospel with the ones who look so hardened with unbelief because God has power to save the heart of the hardened. And this is why Christians keep sharing the gospel with their own children who seem so unwilling to receive it. And why the church has patience and keeps extending love and affection to those in our midst who just seem to be stuck in their sin. Because this is the way of the people of God. Trusting that as we extend the healing mercy of God and word and deed that the power of God will take effect. So we follow Jesus and we see that he, there's no place he won't go and there's no person he can't save and there's no power he can't overcome. And lastly, there's no person he won't employ. There's no person he won't employ. The formerly insane, demon-possessed Gentile man says what? I want to go with you. Don't leave me with these schmucks. They're kicking you out of here. I want to go. I want to follow you. I want to get on the boat with you. Well, of course he does. But what does Jesus say? There's a lot of begging in this passage. It's interesting. The demons beg, and he gives them their answer. He, gives, he says yes. The townspeople beg him to leave, and he says yes. The formerly demon-possessed man says, I want to go with you. He begs to go, and Jesus says no. Why? Because Jesus has a mission for this man. He says, go back to your family. Go back to your friends and proclaim the gospel. And what we see here is a Gentile is ordained into ministry. That, that he not only went from this, his family and he, he went to his whole city, but it actually says, Mark there, it says at the end, he went to the whole Decapolis. That's 10 cities. He went to the entire region proclaiming and they marveled. And he spoke of the wonders of what this man had done who set him free. He is in essence the first apostle to the Gentiles. He start, think about the day he had. He started out naked, foul, and deranged, and he ends the day as a preacher telling the world of the wonders of Jesus. By the way, that's how I began my day too. There is no one that God won't use. The Madani people for years, they speared people to death. They were on a death toll that was going to end their people. They killed those five missionaries, but one of them was a pilot. His name was Nate Saint, and his sister walked through the jungle and went to live with the Madani people. So it wasn't the five young men in great strength in virility of life, it was the little sister of one of them that walked into that tribe, and for some reason they don't know, it was because she was not a threat to them, but she lived amongst the Wadani people, and one by one they came to know Jesus. She died about 10, 15 years ago, but as a result of her testimony in her life, much of the tribe came to know Christ. And it wasn't the brave, brave, five brave men, it was a little woman. There's no one God won't use. But the story doesn't end there. One of the very men who killed Nate Saint, his name was Minkai. His picture is up here in just a second. Minkai was saved through the work of Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint, and he became a church elder. And then he adopted somebody. He adopted Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint. He adopted as his tribal son. And years after Minkai had participated in taking the life of Nate Saint, Minkai baptized Steve Saint and then baptized Steve Saint's children. 
There's no place he won't go. There's no people he won't heal. There's no power he can't overcome. There's no people he won't employ. Those who have received the gift of mercy in Jesus Christ like this become emissaries of mercy to a broken world. Now I ask you, you're a very faithful people at this. But if you're like me, you're weary. You're really tired. And it's so often the ministry that when following Jesus, we found following Jesus is exhausting often because we try to do it in our own strength. But isn't it so good that he gives us a table? And in certain places, this, ta- this table is called the table of mercy. The table of remembrance. What is it that might motivate you to go back out tomorrow? To get up again in the midst of your failures and your weariness and how worn you are and how laborious the field is. And he said there's going to be, it's white with harvest and you're like, I don't see the cotton in my street. I don't see the field that's white with harvest. And so what do you need? You need a drink once again of the mercy of God. And so let's go to the table.